<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Another homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent based on the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, which collects all kinds of interesting objects and ephemera connected with the history of British stand-up comedy. I'm Ollie Double and this is my colleague Elspeth Miller and we are very much the Manly and Austin of comedy archiving. I don't know them either, sorry. I'm doing very well with these double acts. Yeah, Manly and Austin were actually a really good one. They were a variety double act. Uh, a husband and wife act, slapstick. Unusual male-female slapstick act is quite unusual. And it, it was um, the, the, the bill matter, printed under their name on the posters of variety bills, uh, would have been uh, Music Hath Charms. So it started with her playing the violin... And then he would be pretend to be the conductor and he would keep correcting her because she'd play it horribly. And then she'd smash the violin over his head, which is interesting in itself because they play, being a variety act, they'd be used to playing 12 shows a week, okay. twice a night for six nights Expensive. a week. Expensive. They'd have to have yeah. a prop violin made for each, each performance. And then they would have a kind of ritualised slapstick fight uh, to music, I think. Um, there's two great bits of footage of the act. Um, so, yeah, that's why I picked that one. But anyway, that's not who we're here to talk about today. <laughs> the format of this podcast is that each episode we pick out one object, one comedy object from the archive, and we talk about it and actively interpret it to try and work out what it can tell us about the history of British stand-up comedy. So, Elspeth, what's the object we have today? We have a promotional photograph um, given to us by JJ Waller. Um, so we've got quite a lot of promo photos in, in the collections here, um, either th- through um, material that comedians themselves have given us or through material that kind of the club promoters will have given us because they have tons of promo photos that they were sent for their kind of flyers and leaflets that they were doing. Um, so this one of JJ Waller features him dressed in a white vest, white sport shorts, with some odd goggles on he's also got like an odd little, like white necklace as well and then he's holding um two flaming juggling sticks yeah so so, so some interesting flaming promotional photograph flaming juggling clubs I, I did enjoy your description of sports shorts <laughs> there's a there's a kind of i don't know maybe i'm a bit wide of the mark here there's something vaguely homoerotic about that uh, but i think that's an accident and the, yeah the weird goggles are very odd they look kind of like if you tried to make swimming goggles out of card, out of white card, and then cut eye holes in them, uh, very, very strange. Um, so I suppose the question is, who was J.J. Waller? And uh, I think the first thing to say is that when we accepted this collection, I met with J.J. in Brighton, where he now lives and works as a photographer. And I interviewed him on Brighton Station in a cafe. It's very noisy, so there's a lot of hubbub in the background, but we've got some lovely clips of that interview. 
And the first thing that's worth saying is JJ isn't actually his real name. And what we're going to hear now is him explaining how he got the name of JJ Waller or Captain JJ Waller, as he was sometimes known. Now, in order to just set this up, I need to let you know that uh, just before this clip, he'd explained that he'd been working for a community arts group and the project they'd been doing involved uh, making a film with some local kids and he was playing the role of the American film director. So let's hear JJ Waller explaining how he got that name. Edit! Uh, I took the job for two years, which is, by the way, how I got the name JJ. JJ um, was the American film director. My real name is Stephen Simmons. But um, Waller was prior to that. That was when I was at drama college, and uh, I used to um, just kind of dress up as a kind of an eccentric sort of clown type character and, and ride around on a bicycle looking for Piccadilly Circus. And Cambridge Circus, so it's just sort of like being around Stoke Newington places, just engaging with people like a, you know, well, it's not really a circus, and we're just going into some sort of spontaneous sort of comedy stuff. So that was Waller, and I think I'm, I just like the name Waller because it had that sort of uh, Indian connotation of a sort of uh, slightly uh, everyday sort of person. So the two came together. Captain, because that also used to say Captain Jojo Waller originally. That came about from working... I met a group of musicians from Bath called the Pigsty Hill Light Orchestra. They were a comedy jazz band. And they came to perform one summer in Liverpool. And I got friendly with them. And when I left, I went on tour of Europe with them, doing some etymology. And uh, they used to call me Captain. Edit! So uh, he was somebody who worked in community arts and had been playing this kind of walkabout clown kind of character. What? How did he fit in with stand-up comedy? It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, what he this came this wasn't an isolated thing. We, he gave us a lot of material. What else did he give us? Um, so he's also given us kind of other promotional material, so posters and flyers, pictures. We've got lots of press coverage, like some reviews of him. Okay, so uh, th can we have a look at this this flyer here? Um, so it says it's a kind of fold-out thing, and uh, if you look at the, it's, there's a sort of poster of him there. It says Captain JJ Waller in sort of old-fashioned circus kind of writing, and it says Oscar-winning busker there. I think that's a clue, by the yeah. way. And he's described there as the unusualist. It looks like it's been hand lettercettered the lettering because it's not it's all a bit wonky. It's supposed to follow the wonky line of the scroll that it's contained within, but it's not like it like you'd get it if it was done on a computer today. And the picture that of him on that bit looks like it's a reproduction of the photo that we've been looking at. Yeah. On the other side, it says you two can have a body like mine. <laughs> so there is a sort of parody thing there of a sort of muscle man, I think. And then inside it says the act, the man, the crusade. And it describes the act a little bit. And it talks about the work that he's done so far. And we could tell that he was quite successful because he appeared on BBC's David Essex Showcase as well as the Russell Harty Show on television. And he, he's supported loads of bands, actually. Gary Glitter, perhaps not mentioned that. The Clash... That's a pretty proud boast. Mud, early 70s sort of 
glam rock band kind of imagination who were a sort of funk disco-y kind of early 80s band uh pookie snackenberger who were a kind of busking band from brighton and slade of merry christmas everyone fame um so i think there's a lot of clues to what he was there and uh, so without further ado, let's, let's um, move on to who he was. He was a street act. So he was a kind of joke escapologist, and he did all kinds of sort of parodic versions of classic street act material. We'll hear more precisely about what he did later on. He was, he's pretty modest now, looking back at what he did. Edit! Basically, at the end of the day, if I look back now at what I did in Covent Garden and subsequently indoors in comedy clubs in the early days. This was really a load of old bollocks. It was, you know, it, it, it really, I mean, it wouldn't, it would, wouldn't pass muster at all now. It would just be thought of as being rather naive and a bit, bit stupid, you know. Edit! But the point, the point about this is that uh, we think of alternative comedy as being a rebirth of stand-up comedy, but actually it was known at the time as cabaret a lot of the time. And uh, it wasn't just comedians. It wasn't just a thing where you had one comedian after another like you'd get at a modern comedy club. There were all kinds of different acts. And there were all kinds of different influences that came into this growing scene. And one of them was street theatre. And J.J. Waller was from Brighton, as were a lot of other people who appeared on the scene. So people like Lynn Thomas, who we came across in that list in the early episode about the comedy trade union. Similarly, Captain J.J. Waller was mentioned there. Yes, he was, yes. Uh, and then it, Pookie Snackenberger were also from Brighton. In fact, a lot of the street acts were from Brighton. And we have here an article from New Theatre Quarterly. Now, this was uh, probably the first academic article in an academic journal about this new form of alternative cabaret. It was written by a guy called Tony Liddington, who still works today. And he was part of a, a kind of alternative Piero troupe from Brighton called the Pierotters. And in here, you start to see a sense of perhaps a slight rivalry between the political comedians that we now remember as being alternative comedy and the street acts like J.J. Waller. And uh, it says here, there's a, there's a, it talks about the different influences on the growing cabaret scene, and one of them is the street. And there's a section here called The Street is the Acid Test. And it talks very... Um, sort of positively about the street entertainers involved in the circuit and then it goes on to be slightly snide and negative um, about the political comedians so for example it quotes here on page 114 I should just say this this article was originally published in 1987 and on page 114 it's got a quote from Lynn Thomas who we just mentioned and it says as Lynn Thomas shrewdly observed one thing about an alternative comedian he will never ask for an alternative amount of money I suppose it's implying that because they're concerned with money then they must be a bit hypocritical being so left wing or something like that Um, so is that because the comedians who are performing on the cabaret circuit were more likely to see that as a profession, um, a career, and the other people performing on the cabaret circuit were less likely to? I, mean, I don't know, that's a good question actually, because when you actually ask the people at the time, um, they're not sort of, I think they'd be reluctant to go along with that explanation. I mean, in fact, 
quite early on in the history of alternative comedy. I mean, by 1989, when they were celebrating 10 years of the Comedy Store, you were already starting to get people talking about the circuit becoming safe and selling out a bit. And I think you can't accuse something of being safe or selling out if you don't consider yourself to be more radical. And if you consider yourself to be radical, you're hardly like to say, well, I want to be radical as a career. Those two things are often seen as being sort of antithetical. Um, and I can think of an, a newspaper article about this circuit from about 1985 where one of the acts is quoted as saying the advantage of this is we don't have to go through agents or declare our money to the tax we get paid in folding ones right so I think the way, I think the whole circuit re- regardless of what kind of an act you were was still you know run by passion and cash in hand uh, so I, it, may, it may be that or it may not but I think it's probably more a kind of cultural rivalry you know we, we, we've come from a separate place and we're actually slightly better than you you know you, you quite often get that between similar art forms that you know you kind of go well we're I've heard for example storytellers like saying well I'm like what you get at the best of the stand-up comedy circuit and you kind of think well okay th- that's what you say I bet comedians would disagree with that because they would disagree that storytellers are more virtuous mm-hmm. By the same token, they probably think they're better than storytellers. So it's the same sort of thing in a way. Okay. And I think I think the key point here is that um, these people had a had a, a life before they appeared in cabaret, that they didn't cut their teeth in cabaret. They were already going, you know, okay. from slightly earlier, mm-hmm. and they started out really in Brighton and and particularly in Covent Garden. And we have a, a clip here of JJ Waller talking about that. Edit. It's quite interesting because maybe maybe six of us working at that time, just six of us. Uh, Why at Covent Garden? There was no there was no queuing, you know, having to put sign up or and not until later on. We'd just literally just sort of rotate. You know, sometimes there might only be a couple of acts there, and I could do you know five, six, seven shows in a day. You know. um, but what what I think is important about some of those groups, and latterly like the Vicious Boys, um, Pookie Snackenberger, John Hegley's Politicians, um, uh, Matt McDonald's Human Jukebox, Matt from Matt plays in um, uh, the Red Dwarf is one of the kind of characters in there. Um, we sort of kind of created a sort of uh, language, visual and verbally, which quite a lot of people still use today now as standard. Even even when I was working in the street, after four or five years, I would be seeing people coming out like at Edinburgh or something, and literally using my patter, you know, in front of me, and not even knowing that I actually invented that. You know. So what's interesting about that is, apart from, well, actually, before we get on to what's interesting about that, that's another mention of Red Dwarf. It was, isn't it? Red Dwarf seems to keep coming up. I think we we should get a bonus point. (laughs) Or or you could do the podcast drinking game. When you hear an episode of this podcast and you hear Red Dwarf mentioned, you drink. It's funny because we haven't haven't had any contact with, apart from Hattie Hayridge. Yeah. Well, we did get some material from Hattie Hayridge. But otherwise, we haven't had any contact with Red Dwarf. Maybe Red Dwarf is secretly the DNA of British comedy. Uh, <laughs> really? It certainly seems to come up a lot. <laughs> but um, 
But apart from that, what's interesting is he talks about the idea of these street entertainers sort of discovering how to do this and discovering it together, and it being a very small group of people, including some others who went on to perform in cabaret. So John Hegley, for example, is mentioned. Um, that's interesting. Uh, but but um, also, so, so it's like a scene. They created a scene and they created a methodology which then other people went on to copy. And probably some of the techniques that they invented are still used by street acts today. And also, it's, it's worth saying, isn't it, that, that there are acts, much more recent acts, that we've had some communications with who've you know, moved from being street acts into stand-up comedy. I know Stu Goldsmith started out as kind of a street performer. Right, so Stuart yeah, Goldsmith. talks about that. Stuart Goldsmith of yeah, so Stuart Goldsmith of comedians, comedian podcast fame started out as a street act. So it's still it's still a route that's available to performers to start out in the street and move indoors. Are there any of your students who kind of have that interest, or not just stand up students, but kind of general? Um, It's a very good question. That Um, I don't think I've ever done a project with students on street performance. Um, I have occasionally done things with students where you've had to perform in the street. It's a, it's a different skill set. It's very interrelated, but it's slightly different. Um, so anyway, what happens is you get these, these street acts who, who, who are already good at working an audience, and suddenly there's these new things, cabarets, and they start getting invited to do them. So J.J. Waller, for example, um, started out doing cabarets in clubs like... There was a group in Brighton, a musical group called the Galinsky Brothers, and they start doing uh, Cabaret Galinsky and booking people like J.J. Waller to be the other acts on the bill with mm-hmm. them. So he did that, and they did those in Brighton and London as well. Um, and he remembers in the interview uh, specific details of, of the Galinsky cabarets. Uh, but he also performed with CAST, uh, a, an organisation run by Roland Muldoon and Claire Muldoon. And we have in his collection uh, a flyer for that. Yeah, we do cast new variety. I haven't got an exact date on this. It's probably late 80s, I would have thought. So the, the gig that he was playing, um, Captain J.J. Waller, Proper Little Madams, um, swinging, singing and swinging original stars from the homeland of Variety, well north of Watford. That's there. What do you call it on the poster? The uh, bell matter. That's the bell matter. And then also in that night you had Mark Mawards, um, a poet, and Pookie Snackenberger, the comedy band. Okay, if, he, if, he, if he's described as a poet, my guess is this, is this must be early to mid 80s. Because he beca- he sort of morphed into a stand-up towards the end of the eighties. Oh, sorry, he's not just a sorry. That was just me oh, okay. having put. He's he's Bill Matter is yeah. London awaits with baited earholes, baited earholes. Sheffield's noted free-speaking bard. Well, bard suggests mm. poet. I'm, I I think this is like maybe early mid eighties, mm-hmm. um, but I mean that's an interesting bill. And then mm. at the top of the bill, Pookie Snackenberger. Yes, so legendary comedy band in their new variety debut. Right. Uh, and that was, I tell you what, you could have seen that whole show for the princely sum of £2 mm. at the door or £1 if you had a UB40, which wasn't the band, it was the unemployment benefit card or an NUS card. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I bet that was a really cracking show, <laughs> in spite of the fact that he describes it as a load of old bollocks, which we'll perhaps <laughs> come back to in a bit. Well, here he's described as his bill matter is fire-eating, fun and frolics with the king of the buskers. Right. So, so it acknowledges, it gives a, a flavour of what he did in the act, and it also acknowledges his street theatre roots, because he's described as a busker. Um, 
So anyway, he, he did venues like that, and then he went on to play in a very different kind of alternative comedy venue. Let's hear about that now. Edit. And I think that was a pre-runner to playing uh, at uh, the Tunnel. Right. Um, as well, which I believe I was on the very first bill of the Amazing. Tunnel Palladium. Tell yeah. us about that. I only remember... Um, uh, it, uh, I'm sure other people have said that they were the, the, the people that. Well, um, I remember being on stage and doing something. I had an, a routine which involved some eggs, and I think some would. I would very stupidly at the time um, gave an egg to be inspected by somebody. And <laughs> quick, quickly returned and uh, smashed on my head, which everybody thought was really funny. And I think I think I might have had the ability to laugh long, you know. And I think that's why I always managed just to get to get through, because I was uh, remember Moly, uh, at Roland once on one of his bills described me as the self-effacing JJ Weller. Well, I never really knew what that was. I always thought it was a bit of a bit of a weak term, but subsequently understood that I did have the ability to laugh at myself. And that was quite often why I could get people to do what I needed because there wasn't very little content in my, my act, but it did involve quite a lot of audience interaction. And I could get people to do virtually anything. Edit! That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, for a start, it seems like a rookie error. Uh, go to a boisterous club like the Tunnel and going, oh, could you just check these are real eggs? And then they yeah. take them off you and fling them at your face. <laughs> Although if he really was there for the first night, I suppose he had no way of knowing what a fearsome reputation that club would go on to earn, <laughs> quite justifiably by all accounts. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, actually I should just say as well, another thing we've got in the archive is uh, a load of old interviews I did on audio cassette years ago when I was researching uh, well, initially my PhD and later my first book, and one of the people I interviewed was was one of the regular hecklers at the Tunnel Club, a guy called Phil Gasson, and he had all sorts of colourful tales of the strategies they would use to destroy <laughs> acts. Um, but um, yeah, it's interesting what he says about kind of uh, he he would put himself down and laugh at himself. And I think you can see that in this publicity mm. photo. You can see that he has a sense of his own ridiculousness here. But also that he could, um, he could, he could persuade audiences to do almost anything, and I think that he said, and, and there's no content. He says, and I think that's really interesting because I think that that's a really kind of underrated skill, the ability to take an audience on a journey, even if the journey is completely pointless, and persuade them to do whatever you want them to do. Because I think that actors very much fear that thing of going out there with a plan and having to interact with an audience which is an unknown, rather than using text that was pre-written and has been rehearsed over a period of weeks, and every beat of that text can go to plan every time you perform. This is a very different kind of performance where anything can happen. Well, there's the similarities with the stand-up, isn't it? Because of that live interaction with the audience, yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah, huge crossover. It's the it's basically the same skill set. A comedian is manipulating an audience, but they're manipulating them not to inspect eggs or do whatever JJ Waller did, but to get a laugh. You know, they're manipulating their laughter, and they're not even just going, "You will laugh now, you will laugh now." But they they know there are different kinds of laugh. There's the outrage laugh, the the laugh that sort of says that was a bit of a bad pun. You know, the the laugh with an ooh of disapproval, uh, the the quiet laugh, the friendly laugh, the laughter of anticipation. And all of that is under the comedian's command, as is the ability to get the laugh that has applause contained. You know, you like those because they, it, it recognises either they agree with you or that you've done something super good. Uh, yeah, all of that, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a direct connection between them. But we keep coming back to this lack of content point. So let's have a listen, finally, uh, to JJ Waller talking about precisely what he did in his act. He won't describe everything, but he will describe bits of it here. In Covent Garden, there's a picture here, and you see me lying on a bed of nails. Um, then I get somebody to stand on top of me, and it was all about—it was all stop-start. So I was just about to do it, then I thought of something else, and then I was yeah, about yeah. to get back down then, and then it would be so. Not about, not only with a, with a man. Then I got so I got a bloke stand on top of me, and just as he was about to put his second foot, I then get up again and say, not only one man, but two London double-decker buses. So then these two toy plastic buses, it was, it was all rubbish. So we have the photo in front of us that he was describing there. Can you describe it to us? What, what do we see on this photo? Well, it's two photos, isn't it? Sort of, um, well, one is that kind of, wait, the man... So we've got J.J. Waller lying down, wearing fetching leopard print trousers. And a flying um, helmet. And a flying helmet with goggles. Um, he's on cobbles or something. Yeah, and he's shirtless, though. Shirtless. And he's lying on a bed of nails. And he's lying on a bed um, of nails. But yeah, he's definitely in the street. Um, you've got um, a man standing over him. So in the first picture, the man's holding two double-decker buses and he's got one foot on his chest. Um, and then kind of you've got the audience in the background, some of whom are looking a bit bemused, I think. And it's quite and a mixed some of them are laughing. Yeah, you've got kids. Kids sitting at the um, front, yeah, and then adults got, behind. Yeah. And then the second picture is virtually the same, but you've got the man with both his feet on JJ's chest. Um, and JJ's arms are kind of spread out, aren't they? And, and the man's yeah. holding his arms out to, yeah. to, to sort of emphasise the plastic double-decker buses. So... I suppose the point here is what you do is you it, it's like an anti-act really isn't it it's like what they would have called in variety a cod act so you had a uh, if you had a, a mag- magician or a ventriloquist they would the ventriloquist would be showing their skill at ventriloquism the magician would be trying to amaze you but a cod magician would be making you laugh by doing it badly so for example Tommy Cooper or, or a cod ventriloquist Sandy Powell used to do a great cod ventriloquist act the joke is they can't do it and that's so it's, it's entertaining you but not in the way it says it is so in this case he says you know I, I'm going to lie on a bed of nails and somebody's going to stand on and I'm going to, I'm going to bear the weight of two London double decker buses on my chest and the, the cheat is that they're plastic toy ones but you can keep building it up oh first of all a man oh no no wait we're going to add two double decker buses and so it's like a constantly keeping the audience in suspense and building it up and so they're entertained not by the marvellousness of what you do but instead by 
almost like comedic anticlimax mm -hmm. time after time and it's all manipulation which actually far from being a load of bollocks and far from being rubbish it's it's taking no content or even anti-content and making it entertaining and I think that's quite amazing actually especially in front of the NatWest Bank as in these <laughs> photos I think as well uh, I think in some ways this is very of its time I mean this, this other publicity photo we have over here Looks quite Frankie goes to Hollywood, doesn't it? It does, <laughs> yeah. So he, he's not wearing his little goggles there. He's wearing a vest, a white vest, this little white thing around his neck again, and sort of baggy white or light coloured trousers with a black belt pulled up quite high. And it's a very kind of 1980s look. Like you can imagine it being, you know, a band or a singer in the face. That one as well. Do you want to describe that one? So this other one, another promotional photo. Again, he's wearing a white vest. He's got black trousers on this time. Um, but he's got uh, like a baseball hat and sunglasses on. He's kind of holding his trousers. Like, he's not holding his crotch, but it's kind of around the area, isn't it? And he yeah. looks quite American in this. It's yeah, like yeah. an American kind of late 80s rapper kind of pose. Yeah, and it, it goes back to that point, I think, about sort of, you know, kind of looking vaguely homoerotic in the sense that the, if you think about a lot of 80s pop culture, it was quite homoerotic, partly because you had bands who had out gay men in, which was obviously a big step forward, because that was probably not possible to do in earlier decades. And partly because of that whole culture of the face magazine and, you know, the new romantics and, and uh, a particular sort of 80s conception of style, which drew from gay culture, I would say. And although J.J. Waller is not himself gay, you know, it, it, it's, it's a reflection, I think, of, of the time, just as much as getting an act like this on a, on a comedy bill would be. I must just say, actually, uh, when I was doing comedy in the 90s, you still did used to get special acts like this. And I remember being on a, at a venue in Chester, and it was a bed of nails act. And it wasn't like J.J. Waller, it wasn't kind of a cod act. It was a straight up kind of bed of nails act. And, you know, I think there might have been a bit of balancing and things like that as well. And it was a male female act, from what I remember. And I think what happened was they did it, instead of doing a bed of nails, they broke bottles. There's another way of doing it. And then they lay on the broken glass. And they got up at the end. I think it was the woman who did that stunt. She got up at the end. She presented her back to the audience to say, look, I'm unharmed. But they'd not done it well. You have to break mm. the glass up really well, otherwise bits stick up and go yeah. into you. And there was blood coming down her back. And of course, the audience just went, oh. And there was a sort of awkward applause. It was, oh, it wasn't good. So this was, this was, I think, a really interesting comedy object. I think that uh, I, I'm not aware of any... We certainly haven't got any footage of J.J. Waller's act, but I would love, again, as I said in earlier episodes, I'd love to get in a TARDIS and go back and watch one of these shows with him performing, because uh, however self-deprecating he is, I kind of bet it was a great act. So when I've talked to com comedians who were around at that time who were still around and mentioned J.J. Waller, they all look back at, at him and his act with great fondness. Anyway, this podcast isn't just about us telling you things, it's also about you getting directly involved, and there are various ways you can do this. Get involved! If you'd like to directly contribute to the podcast, you can look at our catalogue online. Uh, we've got a link to it on our social media. And pick out a comedy object, email us about it, or communicate with us about it on social media. 
and we will talk about that object in a future episode. Um, please do come in to the Stand Up Comedy Archive. We're based in the University of Kent at the Templeman Library. Um, you could either just look at material for your personal enjoyment. And or your academic you, research. Of course. Um, but if you want to record a short piece about the material that you've looked at, please do and send us the audio. And we'll use it in a future episode. And the stupidest way of getting involved is if, if you like our theme tune, record your own cover version of it, no matter how ridiculous. Send it to us, and if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. Okay, we'll see you again next time for A History of Comedy in Several Objects. A History of Comedy in Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.